Hello, welcome to this episode of World of Wallace and Gromit, the podcast. Having covered various film references featured in the Wallace and Gromit films in their respective podcast episodes, I thought this week we'd look at a selection of real-world references and inspirations that appear in the scenes in the Wallace and Gromit world. There's of course far too many to go into all of the ones that Arvin have cleverly included, but I thought I'd go into just a few of my favourites. Enjoy. Oh, tight lad, I think of Lancashire hot pot. I thought the largest category, literally, would be a good place to start. Buildings and places. As a broad style, Wallace and Gromit creator Nick Park has said that the neighbourhood of West Wallaby Street, where Wallace and Gromit live, is largely based on Wigan in the 1950s. For those of you who might not have heard of it, Wigan is a large town in the Greater Manchester area and the historic county of Lancashire, which is also the county of Nick Park's childhood home of Preston. If you Google 1950s Wigan, as I've just done, it comes up with lots of black and white images of high streets and shops, but if you scroll down to some of the more residential area photographs, you can absolutely see the resemblance to 62 West Wallaby Street in these houses. From the brickwork and the terraced house spacing right to the shape of the windows. Despite it referring to the 1950s in town architecture, I find that the Wallace and Gromit world isn't one that ages or references specific technological developments, with the exception of household electricity and things like TVs and fridges. However, I think I'm right in saying that so far we haven't seen any mobile phones, which either sets a limit to the time period, or is an active choice made by the Argman team. I was going to say that Wallace and Gromit largely represent an idyllic attitude towards technology, one where it's helpful in completing tasks, is often comedic, and doesn't have any irreversible negative consequences. But then I realised that there's actually several parallels between the technology use of their world and ours. It's created for good and helpful reasons, but if it gets into the wrong hands, like those of a certain penguin or cyberdog, it can be used for much darker purposes, and it falls to those who weren't necessarily part of the technology's creation, as in Gromit, to put things to rights. This also presents the idea that not all technology that's invented is worth keeping, and sometimes it's better to take things back to the drawing board. Wallace certainly embodies the trait of resilience in this case, there's always something that can be improved upon to make a situation better. Doing things for the right reasons is the most important thing, even if the end result doesn't always turn out as you hope. But that's a little off topic. Anyway, so moving on, another architectural inspiration is Montacute House, which was the inspiration behind the look of Tottington Hall in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. The name Tottington itself is also the name of a small town in Greater Manchester between Bury and yet another Lancastrian name inspiration, Ramsbottom. Some of you may also know that the shortened version Totty is slang for a sexually attractive woman, often with upper class connotations. Please, Wallace, call me Totty. <laughs> so, a clever choice of name for the manor house and title, really. Montacute House is in North Somerset, off the A303, and is a Grade 1 listed Elizabethan mansion, with extensive gardens. Built in 1598 by Sir Edward Phillips, who was a lawyer, politician and speaker at the House of Commons. James I employed him as Chancellor to his son, Henry Prince of Wales, and Edward is also the opening prosecutor at the trial of the gunpowder plotters. Welcome to this episode of World The House of remained in the family for many years 
but as with many houses in the 19th and 20th century, it was put up for sale when the owners ran short on money for its upkeep. After being emptied of its contents, from 1929 it was on the market as an empty shell for two years, before being bought by philanthropist Ernest Cook, grandson of the travel entrepreneur Thomas Cook. He donated it to the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, from which it later passed on to the National Trust. In the Second World War, it was used by the army for billeting American soldiers before the Normandy landings. The architecture of Montacute House is considered to be English Renaissance style, however some would argue that it's more of an evolution of Gothic as opposed to anything new. The symmetric golden-yellow stone exterior houses a mixture of Gothic and Renaissance features, but it's the windows, and indeed the large quantity of them, that's the standout feature in a house of its age. Like many Elizabethan grand houses, the floor plan is in an E formation, with the absence of corridors. Each room simply led on to the ones adjacent. Looking at images of the beautiful house and its gardens, you can certainly see a direct comparison between it and the future bunny sanctuary of Tottington Hall, with its flat lawns and iron gates and open driveway. Last year, in 2019, to celebrate Wallace and Gromit's 30th anniversary, the Tottington Hall model from the film was actually on display at Montacute House, and in the short Jubilee Buntathon film for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, the film representation of Montacute House was again featured. It's currently maintained by the National Trust, so anyone can visit it, and it's definitely on my list of places that I'd like to see. If we move on now to some of the vehicles featured in Wallace and Gromit, starting with the instantly recognisable Antipesto van. This is modelled on the Austin A35 car, which was introduced in 1956, and was available as a two- or four-door saloon car, a countryman estate, or a van. The Austin Motor Company Limited was a British car manufacturer set up in 1905 and produced thousands of what we would consider classic cars today, before merging with Morris Motors Limited to become the British Motor Corporation Limited, and the Austin Morris brand continued under this umbrella company. Austin A35 van production continued until 1968, with a total of 210,576 vans made. The van could go at a maximum speed of 77 miles an hour and was in the recognisable Austin style with a painted front grille with chrome horseshoe surround and modern style front and rear mounting flashing headlights. Nick Park actually owned an A35 van and when it came to choosing a good vehicle for Wallace's business venture, Nick reckoned that the Austin A35 was the ideal model to use in the film because, as he said, the van needed to be big enough to transport Wallace's invention, the Bumvac 6000, while slick enough to go on high-speed chases. Nick sold his original 1958 A35 van in 2007 to raise money for the Wallace and Gromit Children's Foundation, ultimately selling for £8,000. For their top bun business, the Antipesto van got a repaint and a few adjustments to make it suitable for their bread deliveries, with extra space for them to puff their chef's hat out of the sky roof. As seen in a close shave, prior to the Antipesto van, Wallace and Gromit use a motorbike and sidecar for their window cleaning business transportation. Wallace's motorbike is modelled on the Triumph Tiger Car 200cc single-cylinder motorbike, although admittedly you don't often find this bike out in the real world with a sidecar attached. The Triumph Engineering Company was a motorcycle manufacturing company founded in 1885, initially making bicycles 
and originally based in Coventry, but moved to Meridian after the Blitz of the Second World War. Triumph was a key supplier of more than 30,000 motorcycles to the Allied efforts in the First World War, which were branded as the first modern motorcycles. The company then went through many ups and downs, adapting and learning from fierce international competition, from periods of strong business to struggling to survive. They've changed hands, altered names and moved manufacturing sites over the years, but the latest version of the company, Triumph Motorcycles Limited, still exists and made £498.5 million in revenue in 2017. The bike we're talking about specifically, the Triumph Tiger Cub, was first produced in 1954 and was smaller than previous Triumph models, but with its simple, lightweight yet stylish design, it was very popular with young working men. It was designed to emulate the flashier, larger motorcycles like the Triumph Speed Twin and the Triumph Thunderbird, so the headlamp position and paint schemes were very similar, but at half the price, the Tiger Cub allowed entry to the motorcycle market for first-time buyers. Between 1953 and 1969, Triumph built and sold 113,671 Tiger Cubs, and the motorbike was an affordable way for many young men and boy racers to be part of the motorbike scene in post-war Britain. The bike reached speeds of up to 65 miles an hour, and the efficient use of petrol was a key factor in its success at a time when you were lucky to earn more than £4 a week. In 1961, the British government restricted learner motorcyclists to a maximum engine size of 250cc, boosting the popularity of the Tiger Cub, as it was one of only a few bikes to comply with the regulations. In 2011, enthusiast Mike Prankard actually built his own life-size roadworthy replica of the motorbike and sidecar combo from a close shave, complete with the correct number plate, ladder and everything. Mike had a 500cc BSA motorbike and a Monza Sport sidecar, which he had bought with the intention of returning to motorcycling after a break, and after checking it was okay with Nick Park and Arben, transformed them into the iconic vehicle combo, with bits and pieces from his house and garage. Wallace would be proud. I must say it looks very true to form, and I bet when he's driving it on the roads, people can't help but smile at the fun of it. Complete with Wallace outfit and cuddly grommet in the sidecar, Mike now uses his motorbike and sidecar, to raise money for the Wales Air Ambulance, which is based near where he lives. There are also many brand and popular culture references in the films. I won't go into all the movie references now, as there are so many, but I've mentioned a few in the podcast episodes for the respective Wallace and Gromit films, so do have a listen to those if you're interested. Pun or play-on-word references to popular brands is something Ardman is very well known for. For example, in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, Wallace's fridge is smug, referring to the American brand Smeg, and Gromit uses a drill from Botch, B-O-T-C-H, a play on the German company Bosch, and probably something that Gromit does not want to do to a job, botch it. In A Grand Day Out, Wallace uses duck matches to light the fuse, which is a reference to the well-known Swan Vesta matches made by Bryant and May. Meetabix, in the wrong trousers, is of course a pun on Weetabix, and in A Matter of Loaf and Death, we see Tank Top Man, Furry Liquid, Poochie Shoes and Cheesy Jet. I'm sure you can guess what those brands are. The name Wendeline actually comes from Windowline, which is a product for cleaning grease and dirt off windows, so a pretty appropriate character name for a close shave. 
Personally, I rather like it when we're offered a collection of puns, all at the same time. Like the books at the beginning of The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which all bear some relation to cheese. We have the East of Edam, which comes from John Steinbeck's book East of Eden, merged with the Dutch cheese Edam. Brie Encounter, the French cheese, coupled with the film Brief Encounter. Greater Expectations is, of course, from Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And From Age to Eternity is From Here to Eternity by James Jones, with fromage being the French word for cheese. We also see part of Gromit's LP collection in A Matter of Loaf and Death and The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. The Plant Suite, which Gromit plays to his marrow, is a nod to Gustav Holst's The Planets. And among Gromit's records, in A Matter of Loaf and Death, we see Puccini with two O's, a take on the Italian opera composer Puccini, The Hound of Music rather than The Sound of Music, Puppy Love by Doggy Osmond, the original was Donny Osmond, the Beagles, no explanation needed there, and one by McFlee, which is a reference to the British boy band McFly. It's definitely these kinds of amusing references, which just make you smile when you see them, that are a big part of the charm of the Wallace and Gromit world. What do you think of that then, Gromit? Today's review is of Flushed Away, The Essential Guide. Now, I must apologise that it's not strictly Wallace and Gromit, but to tell the truth, I've kind of run out of Wallace and Gromit books to review for the moment, but this is still Aardman. Personally, I'd say that Flushed Away is a highly underrated Aardman film, and if only it had been done in stop motion, I think there would have been very little for people to complain about. Unfortunately, I believe it had to be made in a bit of a hurry, so stop motion was simply not going to get it done in time, and computer-generated imagery was needed. Anyway, onto the book. It's an accompanying guide to the film, which sets the scene and then introduces different characters, locations and modes of transport, with facts about each. It also loosely tells the story of the film as you go through the book. Each page hosts a plethora of images and cutouts from the film, with an assortment of annotations commenting on aspects of characters' outfits and background objects. The pictures are good quality and fitting for the topic choices on each page, and I particularly like the top trumps or trading card style comparison of all the sewer transport devices. Overall, this book is true to the film, but doesn't have anything extra like behind the scenes or film concept development, so not something to get if you want to learn anything more than what's in the film. But it's well presented, and as a bonus, there's even a pull-out tube-style map of the London sewer pipe links, with some rather punderful station names. All's well that ends well, that's what I say. Now, before we reach the end of this episode, I have got some very exciting news. The next episode of this podcast is going to be extra special, because I'm going to be interviewing the current creative director of Wallace and Gromit, Merlin Crossingham, all about his role, the anniversary of a close shave, and the upcoming Wallace and Gromit adventure, The Big Fix-Up. The episode will be released on the 23rd of December, so make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss out. See you then. From me, from Gromit, from Arj. Au revoir, chucks.